Well, thanks for listening, everybody. This is a podcast with Killer Whales. I'm Allison Morrow, your host. We talk all about J-Pod, K-Pod, and L-Pod, the southern resident killer whales that are on the brink of extinction. The southern resident killer whales who are not necessarily the focus of Josh McGinnis' work. He studies transient killer whales and is the Marine Life Studies Research Coordinator. But Josh, you just had a really cool run-in with the southern residents. Uh, Tell us a little bit about it. Okay, so we had just uh, drove down for our field season in Monterey. We were actually up in the Pacific Northwest uh, off of Campbell River doing a few surveys on transients. And we really were coming down to study um, a group of killer whales down here that uh, meet up with the gray whales that are migrating north um, from their lagoons in Mexico. And we were, the last couple of days, you know, we've had a couple of sightings that, you know, transients been in the area, uh, but nothing really on the water. And I guess, you know, I was like, well, we should head south towards this area called Carmel, which is um, part of the Monterey area. And I, we were going and, you know, we saw a humpback whale and then suddenly I saw a spouse in the distance and I looked through the binos and my, my uh, colleague and uh, partner, uh, Peggy Westap, who I work with, uh, our director at MLS, she goes, we looked at each other and we're like, oh, we've got killer whales. And they were spread out in two big groups, but they were kind of fanned out about two whale lengths from each other. And as they got, I was, I was really excited. I thought they were the transients coming in because they're, they, I was wondering if they were waiting out there because the greys have been kind of few in between for calves. We haven't seen a lot yet coming through the, the canyon. And we were wondering if the killer whales were actually waiting for them to enter Monterey Bay. And as they got closer, I took a look and I was looking through my binos and I, I, I was like, oh my God. And I said, that's, those are residents. And that was, you know, that's else. And I said, Alpod. And I looked at, I looked at Peggy and I said, wow, we've got Southern residents here. And she didn't believe me at first. She's like, how do you know that quickly? And I, I said, well, look, I, I grew up watching these whales. And I, I, I looked, I saw, first I saw Racer or L72 and I, I couldn't, you know, you can't mistake that saddle patch if you tried. And I, you know, we saw L41 Mega and a few of the others. And Right away, she, you know, she started to see the open saddle patches, and we both were like, "Wow!" The whole entire Monterey Bay scene just exploded. I mean, we don't see residents that much in the area, and um, I mean, the last was 2011, and we got in there. We're permitted researchers, actually, with NOAA, um, so we have the NOAA permits on our our boats to do the research. So, we uh, we started going to try to get some IDs, and one of the things in my mind was, where was L124, the new calf? Right. And so L124 was just uh, born how many months ago? Like three months ago or something. Right? Yeah. Yeah. About that. It was about three three months ago, I think, now that I started. I got the first I heard first of L124 being born to L77. Mm-hmm. And the reason that that's so special to still be seeing L124 for those who may not know a whole lot about the southern resident killer whales is that their calves don't uh, have a great survival rate. Yeah, and, and that's true. Like, I mean, there's been some weird things happening with the community. I mean, in general, I think the you know killer whales being top predators, you know, survival rate of calves is about sixty uh, percent on to- in total. And I mean, like a death, like mortality rate is, and that's not very good. I mean, even for a top predator, that's that's pretty sad. And and you know, with the calves, with recently we had kind of an abnormal event where most of the baby boom, they call it that. Um, the southern residents had kind of declined all at once and within like the last two years all those new calves basically this disappeared now and there hasn't been any it's been a long time since a new calf has been born 
And L124 kind of, you know, gave hope to the community that the Southern residents were kind of, you know, coming back from hopefully a, a, a terrible episode of this kind of thing. So yeah, it was really exciting to see it, to see it. And we know that there are two other Southern resident killer whales who are pregnant, one in the K-pod and one in the J-pod, but we have yet to see any of those calves actually be born. So we don't know what's going on with those two, right? No, um, you know, honestly, when we were there, um, we we recognized L-Pod there. We did not see Ks at all. Um, uh, one of the whale watching companies here said there's Ks there, but we honestly didn't see it. I'm still working through a lot of the IDs. We spent a good two and a half to three hours just collecting IDs because we I send a lot of my data to NOAA, uh, so Northwest Fisheries Science Center in Seattle with Brad Hansen. I send a lot of um, anything I hear about residents in abnormal areas outside of the San Juans. So for us, it was important. I was trying to get as much as we could. So data, Latin longs, location, you know, time, what they were doing. And they were booking it. They were moving fast north. And we right away were trying to get as much info as we could. And then we also suddenly were hit by the social media. Everybody was interested, like, what did we see? I can say for certain, L, like L124, the new, the new calf, was looking strong. And that was a, a big thing that a lot of people were worried about. And she kept up with the pod completely. Her mother, L77, was with her the entire time. There was no separation. Um, and a cut about a month ago, less than a month ago, we had seen J-Pod up near Campbell River, another area that's kind of a little bit uncommon. And um, we saw J-53 actually traveling by itself away from its mother and quite a distance, actually. And that was kind of concerning. Um and that for us, like seeing the mother calf bond with L124 and, and L77 was so positive. It gave us a bit of an uplift. And we got some great photographs of both of them, left side and right side photographs of, of them. And they, they looked really happy. And both the calf seemed to be just, you know, doing quite well. So Josh is somebody who obviously you get really excited about these whales. The fact that you can spot and recognize them from so far away so quickly you must love them um you studied though the transient killer whales mostly and maybe there are people listening who don't know the difference between transient killer whales and the southern resident killer whales so do you mind giving all of us a brief primer on the difference yeah transients are you know the difference between the transients and residents there's quite there's quite a difference you know to the untrained eye most people would just say it's a killer whale but you know, over time, you know, you see differences in morphology, which is the way they look, um, you know, physically, the, you know, the description, like they're, you know, transients having pointed dorsal fins and often a closed saddle patch, um, where residents have open saddle patches with black pigments that enter um, and have more rounded dorsal fins. I mean, those, those things, but there's even more, you know, deeply entwined into their genetics. There's, there's huge differences with transients being almost 700,000 years removed from residents um, and offshore is the other type of uh, uh, killer whale that lives in the area. Then you also have the fact that, you know, residents and transients, the biggest characteristic that really distinguishes them is their diet. I mean, the whole reason we see different sizes in pods with residents being, you know, 25 to, you know, up to 75 animals with mixed groups to transients being one to 12 is the fact that they eat completely different prey sources that really have shaped their ecology so with transients eating marine mammals and residents eating fish these are these are huge differences that you know would shape an animal's overall behavior and then the last thing too is acoustics 
acoustics. I mean, and that's a big thing. When you start to see changes in acoustics and morphology, where acoustics and transients and resonance is like day and night, you, you know, if you hear both of them, even to un, the untrained ear, they can t- easily tell the difference between them. So when you start to see these things, you're seeing an evolutionary change in a species that's we, we know we 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 believe to be a single species and maybe what is called incipient, which is a species diverging into multiple. And because, as you mentioned, that these southern resident killer whales are fish eaters and, of course, they love salmon, we think that's why for a long time they called the Puget Sound area one of their home bases because we had great salmon runs. Now that we're losing salmon, that's also part of the reason that we may lose these whales because they're not changing their diet and they're not getting enough to eat. What do you think they were doing off the coast of California? Were they looking for food there? So that, that's really interesting. And it was really kind of a question that came to our mind was, you know, where were they coming from? And because they were coming from the south, which was, you know, they were coming. I don't know if they were coming in from offshore. We'll never know. I mean, but how far south were they? And, the you know, we had seen researchers and, you know, read some of the literature that have suggested that, you know, the Columbia River salmon off of Oregon and Washington is possibly, as well as the Fraser River, two important um, uh, fish stocks that, or you know very important to the southern residents right now actually the chinook salmon and a bunch of the fishing is getting underway in monterey and um we actually a colleague of ours had mentioned seeing a lot of the fishermen having to take the salmon off their lines and get them out of the nets because it's not time yet but there was salmon being caught in monterey so what species of salmon that was we don't know but we do know that Chinook is kind of in the area now in spring. So it might make sense that they're coming down this far. Another thing we kind of noticed that was interesting was that we haven't had many transient sightings in Monterey right now. And our data, which has spanned since 2006 in Monterey, has really shown quite a high occurrence rate of transient sightings in March and April. And the residents, though, with being with them being around, who knows if... Their, their actual abundance and in, in being in the area actually cause maybe the transients to not be around. And we see that in the Pacific Northwest sometimes where, you know, when residents are quite, a, when they're in the area, they can, you know, they could be vocalizing, transients often give them a wide berth or try to avoid them. And we don't know because uh, this, this is a time when we're expecting a lot of transient action and not resident. That's really interesting. So when you spot them and you don't, usually see something like that does that um draw a crowd besides people like yourself who have loved these whales since you were little yeah it was wild you know like we had you know my my uh peggy the uh, my colleague and who i work with she never she spent many years on the ocean and she's never seen a resident which was wild to me because you know mostly even the whale watchers that were in the community down in monterey had never seen a resident killer whale and that to me was mind blowing because I've seen them, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, they were quite a common occurrence for so long. And like for me, I looked back and I was like, wow, Peggy, you've never seen a, a resident. She goes, no, you know, I've seen offshores. I've seen lots of transients because transients are the most common, but never a resident. And that to me was like, you know, the most exciting factor because even the whale watchers were blown away. They were all out. Everybody was out. Even people that were like saying the weather's going to be a little too rough, maybe we shouldn't go out. When they heard there was residents, it was, you know, it was all for all. Like, they wanted to see what all, you know, what this type of killer whale was. Why do you think we love them so much? I mean, I know that question kind of comes out of left field for a scientist, right? You're supposed to just study them kind of, I'm sure, from an objective standpoint. But why do you think they draw such um, an attachment from all of us who like 
to hear about them and are rooting for them? What is it about the residents? Well, you know, that's a really great question. And, um, you know, honestly, I can say that I think that most animals, not just killer whales, but elephants, lions, anything charismatic that really, you know, captures our imagination with their awe and power, it really attracts people. And I think that the killer whales are no different. Um, the residents are an iconic animal. I mean, ever since the First Nations people were putting them on totem poles and, you know, and had a healthy respect for them, I think that killer whales have really captured humanity's awe of such a powerful animal, not just the, the coloration, that monochromatic color of, you know, black and white and and the high-pointed dorsal fin really screams, you know, a beautiful animal. And, you know, I think, you know, that we're really seeing an animal that in nature is so complex. It has family, matrilineal families, uh, matrilines with a mother leading a group. Um, you know, they're so complex and where they hunt and how they associate with each other. And I think that's really interesting is that there's different types of killer whale that live sympatrically in the area. And I think that that's enough to really... You know, that's so interesting because it's something you don't see in nature very often. I think that everybody just wants to be, have some sort of knowledge of what these animals are ecologically. And there really is not much cuter than a baby killer whale. Yeah, nothing's really cuter than a baby killer whale. We call them little buttonheads. Um, they're, <laughs> you know, they kind of like when you see them try to come out of the water to take a breath, you know, the adults are so easy. They just come out and... You know, their head just breaks the surface, the rostrum, and they take a breath. But a, a calf, when it tries to come out of the water, it's, it's the whole head has to come out of the water. Um, and it's like basically they're struggling to to take that breath. And I think it's so cute that, you know, you got this small animal that's dwarfed by a mother or, a, you know, an uncle or, a, um, a, you know, a sibling and just really shows that, that, um, that difference. And it's definitely pretty cute. <laughs> It's also, of course, what makes it so much harder when you lose them, right? Because we get easily attached to them. They're so cute. And then they just disappear. And that's happened to many of them over the last few years that everybody was rooting for, like you said, in that baby boom. Does it give you hope? Or I know I've had you on the podcast before. In fact, you're the first ever returning guest. Uh, are you, <laughs> you. hopeful? You know, when you see them passing through California and you said she's looking good, are you hopeful or is there still a mediated um, sense of, uh, yeah, I'm I'm hopeful, but realistic? L-124 is not out of the woods, right? Well, you know, I'm hopeful, but realistic. But I, I do realize that, you know, compared to this transient boom in babies, because they're also having a lot of calves being born in and when they get past the six-month mark, you know, their mortality rate goes down quite a bit. And then they, you know, success goes up quite a bit. And I think that she's, you know, the residents have completely different um, factors going against them environmentally as well as, you know, ecologically compared to transients. That, you know, the lack of salmon, lack of food is something that the transients do not share with the residents. The transients have a healthy food source of harbor seals and porpoise and um, and gray whales and I, and the residents do not share that they have a lack of salmon and with the culture so strong I think that you know that's not something a calf can just avoid and hopefully have a successful life that is something that you hopefully a successful mother like L77 and her close um, family members all have 
you know, good knowledge of where to find fish. I mean, it, you, we all know that killer whales are very cultural and how they they designate their hunting and, you know, their knowledge. And we just, you know, it's something that you really just hope that that calf will have a successful upbringing. And that's really where I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't like to say luck, but I, I like to say that I hope there's a, a chance that, you know, there's some success with that calf. People may not know, but last year, Governor Inslee's Orca Recovery Task Force put together a plan to try to do everything possible as fast as possible to give these whales the best fighting chance at survival. And now those recommendations are making it through the legislature. If you're somebody who's not a lawmaker, you're just an average person, and you want to also participate in that, Josh, what do you think are some good ways for people to support these whales? I think, you know, right now with the whole issue with the, you know, the, with the government is that we're, we're really not tackling the biggest problems. And the biggest problems are often mostly the most expensive problems. And, um, you know, it's all a sign of entropy, you know, that physical property where it's easier to destroy something than it is to recover something um, or fix something. So it's easier to destroy a salmon river by logging, like um, through, through clear-cutting a forest and destroying a, a stream or um, salmon go up than it is to restore it. And I think that what we really need to be focusing is is fixing the the major issues which is getting rid of the dams fixing the rivers um but in the process also is fixing the smaller things i think vessel traffic is also you know an issue pollutants are still an issue by fixing like smaller things like even like vessel traffic you know you're alleviating a little pressure off the community so i think people need to focus on not just the big things but the small things you know, when a species is hit ecologically by numerous factors, be by, you know, one, a species can often be able to sustain itself or be able to um, survive if it at least has, um, based on one or two of these factors. But when you have multiple pressures on a species, then often it's mm -hmm. enough to make, a, make an animal cr or cr crush a population or a species. So I think by getting rid of some of these small things like the, the the vessel traffic, the noise, the pollutants, or trying to you know alleviate that pressure, it might help the residents at least sustain a little longer until we can kind of figure out how to save them from the, uh, the bigger issues like the lack of salmon, which is not a small thing to tackle. It is a it is very complex. I mean, salmon is a, another living thing, not like a pollutant that's not living. Salmon's a living thing and. And we really kind of messed up when it came to destroying the river systems and overfishing. I think that's uh, much more complicated and it's going to be much more difficult to solve. But you're hopeful still? I very much am. I I really can't. I, I don't know how I could see the ocean without the residents. I don't know if I could ever go to a presentation, which I just did one in San Francisco for the American Cetacean Society, and say there's two types of killer whale that live in the Salish Sea or in the Pacific, Northeastern Pacific. I don't think I could ever say that. Knowing there's three types of killer whale makes my job and my interest in being a biologist so much more, um, so much more interesting. And I think that seeing a species go extinct like that, I just don't think, and knowing it's gone, being living in the time when a species like that goes extinct, I think that'd be heartbreaking. For all of us, I'm sure. For, for everyone. I think we would all... I think we'd all really lose a key part of our, our culture in the Pacific Northwest.
Josh, is there anything I didn't ask you about that you'd like to add? I just want to say keep uh, an eye out for those residents as they come north. Um, they were going pretty quick. They were moving at 11 knots. And we got a sighting today, this morning, off Half Moon Bay, which is near San Francisco, um, of residents heading – not residents, of a killer whale – um, being sighted. So we don't know if that was a transient or a resident or what it was, but um, just be on the lookout. Els might be heading your way. And um, just to you know, let you know, we'll be finished our killer well survey on April 20th, and I'll be back up there, and hopefully we'll get to see the residents back in their in their local waters. All right, Josh McGinnis, uh, whale ecologist, transient killer whale expert, and marine life studies research coordinator second time on the podcast first <laughs> returning guest ever josh thanks so much thank you so much for having me Austin. it was a pleasure